Hello and welcome to History Rage, the new podcast where we invite members of the historical community to get angry, to get ragey, to get a few things off their chest. I'm public historian Paul Bavel and this week I'm still hosting alone because Kyle is still on holiday and at last count was trekking the route of the World War II evacuation of Crete. I'm sure he's going to talk us all through it when he gets back. This week, however, we're joined to discuss probably the darkest subject we've covered so far on History Rage. So please be aware, we're going to be talking about some pretty graphic and haunting stuff here. This week, we're joined from the Pilecki Institute in Warsaw by Polish historian and former Auschwitz guide, Alina Nowabilska. Alina, hello. Hi, Paul. I'm saying I'm excited to be here. Well, I'm always looking forward to talking about uh, Auschwitz and things like that, but I'm I'm excited to rage and rage at people. And having you know met you a fair few times and seen you on uh, Woody's YouTube channel, who'll be joining us next week, you do rage a lot as well. But but before we get drawn into the rage and that which you hate the most, can you tell our listeners, um, for those who are unlucky enough not to have met you, um, a bit about you and the work that you and the Pilecki Institute do? So, do you know what? I'll start with the Pilecki Institute. So I joined the Pilecki Institute not very long ago, uh, a few months ago. And the Pilecki Institute is, is a research centre. Uh, they don't just do World War Two. It's uh, totalitarianism. Uh, so we also do the Cold War and parts of the 20th century, even though I like to say that, you know, World War Two is the most important subject. However, we do the, the, the whole set. Um, I run the social media and do podcasting. I uh, did podcasting with uh, History Hack as well. So now I've moved on to doing podcasting for the Pilecki Institute. So like I said, social media. Um, I'm out there. I did a, a, a mini docuseries with Jack Fairweather. We went to Berlin on the Pilecki train, which is really exciting. That should be out pretty soon. Um, but all in general, I um, should be publishing my book soon. That's if I get around to finishing it at this rate with yeah. the amount of work I've got on. Um yeah, lots of interesting things happening around and about me. Uh, so I'm like you, I'm a public historian rather than an um, academic, because I think academia is a little bit boring. I don't know what you think. Um, I think academia, it has its place, um, if that's probably the diplomatic way that I could put it. And bearing in mind that we would like to get a couple of academics on here. I don't want to, uh, I don't want to burn too many bridges, but there, there's a lot of exclusivity surrounding academia that I've always found not particularly welcome I don't know how you feel about that oh totally totally I mean for example I find in public history we can have a how to say we have a much wider range uh, and we can access many different things and do many different things and unfortunately when you're in academia you're quite stuck in, in in certain areas and I know a lot of my academic friends are like oh I envy you for doing public history because you can do everything. So I think that's the bonus of being a public historian. Yeah, I think as a public historian, you are allowed to actually enjoy history. Which I think is a very defining difference. Well, But that's not to say we've got bad academics. I love my academic friends. They're awesome. If you're all listening, I love you. Absolutely. Those of you who have PhDs, I am so envious, not only that you have PhDs, but that you could have done everything that gets up to getting one of those PhDs because you know what I'm not in it it's not in me I agree totally on we are on the same wavelength it's great excellent well we've brought you on to history rage because uh, well we want to hear you rage so Alina please tell us what's the one thing uh, in your area of history that you just wish people would just stop believing 
I'm going to I'm going to start with a story. OK, and then I'm going to start with my rage because this story leads quite nicely into my rage. So a lot of the time people ask me, oh, so what do you specialize in? I say, oh, so I specialize in, in Auschwitz. I specialize in specifically the first transport because my great uncle, uh, he ended up in the first transport number five, 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 Leon Lipinski. Hmm. So it's pretty close to my heart. And the first question I get asked is, are you Jewish? Yeah, an understandable question. Well, it's not offensive because they've asked me because I'm Jewish. Not at all. I am offended because of their lack of historical knowledge. Now, I'm going to say this. This is really awful because even historians, and I'm I'm telling you, even historians, actual historians have asked me this question. And it's like, no, I'm not Jewish. The first transport people, they were Poles. The first people into Auschwitz were Poles. There were 728 Poles with a handful of Polish Jews, but they weren't arrested. These Jews are not being arrested because of the Holocaust. The Holocaust, okay, doesn't start in Auschwitz till summer of 1942, spring of 1942. Yeah. So it's, we're talking about two years of the concentration camp operating. There's a whole lot of war before the final solution, isn't there? I mean, even somebody who's not, I, I mean, it's not my area of expertise, both Second World War or really, you know, the, the Holocaust, but... But we do know that the, you know, the Vansay conference follows on from there. There's a lot of war before the final solution comes in. And there's not just a lot of war. There's there's a lot of things happening around the war that aren't necessarily to do with the war. You know, for example, the, the development of the gassing process or, you know, it, it, it just winds me up that there's so many other things happening that contribute to this. And people just concentrate and go, OK, right. So um, it was all about the Jews. I mean, it is all about the Jews at the end of the day. But there were other victims too. We cannot forget the 150,000 Poles. We cannot forget that ended up in concentra- in, uh, in Auschwitz, by the way. Uh, about 75,000 uh, end up uh, killed. We're talking about 15,000 Soviet prisoners of war, okay? 15,000. Yeah. And at the end, there was, some, there was a handful of them left in 1945, a handful from 15,000 that arrived. It's, it's just, it's mind-blowing to these guys. We, we cannot forget the Roma Incenti. We cannot forget the other nations that ended up in the concentration camp system, especially in Auschwitz. You know, you had the French, you had the Czechs, you had um, Hungarian, you had all sorts of people that had nothing to do with the Jewish religion that ended up in the concentration camp system, and we seem to forget about them. Yes, we had the, you know, the disabled, the homosexual, the left-wing Exactly. I mean, there weren't very many uh, homosexuals in Auschwitz specifically. There was uh, about 80 odd from what's been found. There's very little evidence, unfortunately. This see, this is another subject that we could also rant about is there's very little written uh, about homosexuality in the concentration camp system because you've got to remember post-war as well. So we're looking about Germany and France. It was still illegal to be homosexual. So people couldn't talk about their experiences. They couldn't talk about that, oh, I was arrested and given a pink triangle. We're lacking in evidence for this as well. I mean, there's a new book that's coming out that hopefully will shine some new light on the research. But it's still, it, it compared to what we have about Poles, compared to what we have about the Holocaust, it's minuscule, absolutely minuscule. Yeah. But your your underlying point is there there is an awful lot more to Auschwitz in its history than the than the final solution that everybody dives straight in on. Exactly. I mean, for example, most people come into Auschwitz and go, Oh, 
well, I didn't realise that there were Poles and Soviets and Roman city because we're not taught that we're talked we're taught about the Holocaust, which I'm sa- I'm not saying is the wrong thing to do. We should definitely be teaching about the Holocaust, but again, we should be giving a whole rounded picture, not just a one sided view. So, if we're looking at the uh, as you mentioned, as we both mentioned, there's a lot of war, there's a lot of other things going on between sort of 1939. 1942 or in fact between 1933 and 1942 is building up to that final solution but how do we go from well where does Auschwitz start as and and then how does that how do we get to the stage of gas chambers that we all know god i'm going to give you a 101 of Auschwitz in five minutes are you ready ah hit hit us with it Right. Okay. So um, we're going to start right from the beginning. So I'm going to really sum this up super quick. You, Everybody here knows the Germans invaded Poland, 1st September 1939. What a lot of people don't rem- rem- uh, remember or understand about this, it was instant terror in Poland. Like the civilian population were, was being mass murdered. Uh, people were being put down, the intelligentsia being rounded up, people that are potential threats being put into prison. So these people end up in these prison systems uh, in occupied Poland, also on the territory of the Third Reich. There's nowhere to put them, right? We've got to get rid of these people. Where do they go? So what they do is they've decided that they're going to open up a new concentration camp because places like Dachau, Sachsenhausen, you know, they can't cope with this mass influx of prisoners. They have nowhere to put them. Yeah. So what they end up doing is in January, they set up a commission, 1940, they find different sites, they look around, then they find this one great site, which is uh, in the town of Oshvenshim. Why was it built? There was already an infrastructure and the location was uh, quite isolated in a way. So the first prisoners arrived to Auschwitz on the 20th of May, 1940. Here's a trick question. Who were the first prisoners that arrived to Auschwitz? This is for you, Paul. Oh, this is for me. Good Lord. So, Polish soldiers. Incorrect. And it's a trick question. Don't worry, everybody gets this question wrong. And I actually put this on most of my talks ever uh, just to trick people. So if anybody's listening, you're going to come to another talk. At least you're going to know the answer now. Uh, It was 30 German German criminals from Sachsenhausen and they're to be the first capo. So there's 30 of them arrive, whole other different scenario. This could is actually you, one of my favourite parts of history. Sorry, if you could just do if you're a quick outline of what a capo is. Ah, okay. So a capo is a functionary prisoner. Uh, functionary prisoners basically are overseers. And um, in theory, again, I'm not going to go into detail yeah. because this is something that we could talk about for ages. It's a very grey area and it's not black and white. They're not all evil. Okay, psychopathic killers. There's a lot of good people that end up in, it becomes very, twisted and difficult to answer this question but in general the overseers you end up with some very incredibly brutal people but also you end up with some incredibly amazing good souls that try and do the best that they can anyway moving on from these guys this is when the official mass transport arrives which is what i specialize in which is the 14th of june 1940 728 men predominantly uh poles with a handful of polish jews who like i underlined earlier they have not been arrested because of the Holocaust, they are part of the intelligentsia. They have worked in, um, for example, as a, as a town mayor, or they're in the resistance, or something along those lines. They've been arrested alongside their fellow Poles. And at this point, yeah. Auschwitz has become an indirect form of extermination. Okay, this is the first function. This is the concentration camp function. Indirect extermination. 
So we're not lining people up and marching them into the showers at this stage. This is more working no. people to death kind of thing. Correct. So you're looking at working them to death through disease, through hunger, through uh, basic terror. You know, ex executions begin uh, in uh, the biggest executions begin in 1941 in uh, the by the wall of death oddly enough on the 11th of uh, november 1941 it's uh, they say that it's a way to terrorize the poles that's polish independence day by the way yeah. the 11th and um <clears throat> it was a way to kind of terror over terror but anyway things are happening before that there are executions and people are dying and it's actually overall an absolutely horrific place to be so the terror on poles is just focused on those years. The terror changes a little bit once we start involving the mass gassings. It doesn't become so focusedly intense on the poles. I mean, I'm not saying conditions get any better, yeah. um, but they marginally get better for the poles because the Germans now focus themselves on the mass gassings um, of the Jewish population. But how do you said, how do we get to the stage of gassing? Okay. Uh, what we're going to talk about very, very briefly is uh, the T4 program, which is the extermination of the disabled and the mentally ill. And that actually comes to Auschwitz on the 28th of July. There's a commission and seven, um, 575 prisoners are taken away because they were disabled or they were sick and they were taken to Jonenstein and uh, gassed. So that is the first theoretical gassing but it doesn't actually happen on the, the Auschwitz uh, yeah. sort of site so when does the first gassing actually take place that happens on the 3rd of September 41 now we're going to do what a year and a couple of months after the first transports arrived um, yet we don't have mass transport as Polish Jews on site uh, we still. have still the, the, we have small concentrations of them and by the way none of these none of these people survive None of these Polish Jews survive. They they don't. They're, they're so brutally tortured, but yet they're not being gassed on a mass scale. So you have, uh, on the 3rd of September, 600 Soviet prisoners of war, uh, 250 sick Poles from the hospital. They're taken into Block 11 and they're gassed. And the gassing process takes uh, about a day and a half, two days, because they're experimenting, experimenting with Zyklon B. Uh, it's really inconvenient how they're doing this gassing process because they have to literally take the bodies out of the cells, up the stairs, from the stairs to a wagon, wagon to the crematorium. It's becoming, this is this is not possible. I mean, this is inconvenient. Yeah. You haven't got the so, time. You haven't got the time. It's a waste of time. So what they do, they take them to the crematoria. Now, at this point, they introduce a third oven and we're only looking at 340 bodies a day. Now, if you've gassed, what was it? Six, seven, eight, nine hundred people. That's going to take two, three days of cremating them. This is not functional. This doesn't work. No, and it just doesn't. You now, that's the sort of thing that's going to make the camp an unbearable place for its staff, which is what the Third Rice definitely doesn't want. Well, this, they're, they're in the crematoria at this point. So the only people that are actually dealing with this are the prisoners. So the prisoners are physically cremating that i mean the germans have nothing to do with this they they pull the gas in and they leave the prisoners to do all the dirty work really ah, and it's right. what it's what ends up happening when we when you move on to Birkenau and you deal with the zonda commando you actually have jewish prisoners carrying out the uh basically getting rid of all the bodies it's it's quite sick if you really think about it at the yeah. end of the day 
but so we've got problems at this point. There's there's problems. So they start deciding, OK, we're going to start using crematoria one. OK, but we've got more problems that fall into this. First of all, it's too close to the camp. Second of all, it's too close to the road where, you know, anybody, not that anybody could see, but in theory, people could see. Uh, you can hear the gassing happen. You can hear, hear the screaming, even though they put uh, cars and trucks outside and start revving the engines. OK, um, you can't basically cremate enough people. So how are they going to fix this problem? Because slowly but surely from January, you're getting small groups now of Jews coming in. And these are the ones that are too sick to work where they've been working and they just they need to be getting rid of. So uh, Hearst actually thinks of a new plan. Because remember, we're now evolving. We're going from block 11, which is yeah. really difficult, to now we're moving closer and closer to Bida Canal. And just one thing I do want to underline, Bida Canal was not built for the extermination of the Jews. Bida Canal was actually built for the Soviet prisoners of war. Yeah. Just, just a side note there. Uh, but then obviously the function just starts to change as we keep moving further and further along in history. And uh, things change. So obviously Operation Barbarossa isn't a success. So they're not gaining any more Soviet prisoners of war. So they need to get their labour from somewhere. So they think, oh, well, we could use the Jewish population. But at the same time, we're going to exterminate them. You know, it, it, I still can't wrap my head around this point. But I don't think we'll ever really truly understand how they come to the conclusion we can we can just not think in that way exactly and, and i'm going to be very thankful for that as long as i live Ex well exactly i mean so we're moving forward with this whole process so what happens is in the spring of 1942 you have the little red house or bunker one which is built just outside of a bit of canal you can google it on a map obviously we're doing audio so i can't show you on a map exactly where it is um, but it doesn't exist anymore. Just there's some stones there remembering uh, what happened anyway. So what they do is they open up the walls on the inside. This is a farmhouse. This is a house where somebody lived and somebody had happy memories with their children playing in the garden. I mean, I, I can't wrap my head around that either. Imagine coming home and realising that your house was used to, to, to gas thousands, thousands of people. But moving on from that, basically, they opened up the walls, they sealed the windows, they had gaps where they would throw in the Zyklon B. And then what they would do is they would bury the bodies. They're not burning them yet. We still haven't got the crematorias, crematoria three, four and five. So this is this is still at the primal stage. Again, what happens now? They're burying masses and masses of bodies. These bodies are decomposing and they're now kind of the fluids and everything else are seeping into the ground. So the local farmers and the local fish farmers are now complaining because everything is dying. So you've got, like I said, one problem to the next problem. So how do we solve this problem? OK, let's burn the bodies. So the bodies don't quite burn correctly at this stage. And you're thinking like, my God. I just I just want to scream every time I yeah. talk about this and read it. It's like this one problem, you're thinking, Jesus Christ, what are they going to do now? What do they do? Hurst takes a trip to Helmnor, and he learns how to properly burn the bodies. So there's a whole there's a whole step by step learning it. It it is actually yeah. almost like an engineering solution to a problem of just the Correct. next problem and the next problem and the next one until you've got something where you don't have the problem anymore. That's that's staggering. It's a factory. 
it's a factory with one problem after the next and each problem is fixed. Um, I'm going to give you one really super quick example. Um, when the transports first arrived, the Jewish transport, the mass Jewish transports, they weren't, um, they weren't selected. There was no selection. So what they did was they were putting everybody into the concentration camps. And then they learn that obviously elderly people are not very functional, are they? They're going to be dying within a week or two or a few days because they, they, they can't survive. So then they start eliminating the elderly people. Then they realised, oh, well, women with children don't quite function very well either, because if you take the children away from the mothers, the mothers will not be able to function very well. So therefore they're useless. So why don't we just exterminate the mothers with the children? So it's this whole process of learning one thing after another. And yeah, so when we, as we mentioned before, when we think of Auschwitz, and we naturally kind of think of the efficient industrial death and murder that that, that we've evolved to at this point. So, I mean, are we are we overlooking the the worst evils here? You know, is there a danger that that earlier Auschwitz, possibly more brutal war crimes, are just dwarfed by the scale of the later the later Holocaust? and that we need to focus our attention on on the brutalities that go earlier. At the moment, when we talk about this in public history, you've got one side shouting at the other side, saying, you know, we suffered more, therefore you should listen to us. Then you've got one side going, but we also suffered, listen to us. And it's a massive balancing act at the moment, because in all in all, yes, we should commemorate the Holocaust and it should be underlined and it should be in schools and we should be talking about it. But if you are teaching the Holocaust, you cannot omit the concentration camp system itself. And I find that's what's being completely omitted. For example, I spoke with some teachers and they themselves didn't even know that what happened in Auschwitz in the first two years. They just teach the Holocaust. And to be able to understand one, you can't leave it without the other. You need both halves to make a whole to be able to understand that it was this system. And it all started with those Soviet prisoners of war. Yeah. At the end of the day. And I'm talking specifically about the gassing process. I'm not talking about anything else, but specifically with that gassing process. You can't forget the Soviet prison and the and the Poles that ended up in there, too. And I suppose one of the more controversial points is if it, if everything continues to focus on one area or not the other, and then that's going to create problems of its own. That's good. If everybody's having this mass shouting match of we are being left behind because you're focusing on all those that in end. That, that in its end can can fuel even more anti-Semitism, which creates then more division, which brings us back to the problem as it was at the start. Anyway, you know, do you Agreed. think it's you, you think that there's that level of importance to making sure that this fuller picture goes out there? No, completely, completely, because we shouldn't. Anti-Semitism is. I am personally, I am afraid of anti-Semitism and what's going to happen in the future because we're not we're not finding this balance at all and it is fueling anti-semitism it's fueling anti-semitism everywhere around the whole of europe around the whole of the world and it's not just fueling anti-semitism from the side of oh you know those jews should die and well done for the holocaust and you know from the holocaust deniers because there are another people that are fueling things um but it's coming from the 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 other sides where people just they just don't talk about it they don't understand it it's not 
in education it should I'm trying to struggle to find the words how to explain this because it is the biggest genocide that happened and it was a systematic killing of the Jewish population and behind this was the Slavs the Slavs were not far behind because once Hitler had eradicated the Jews he would move on to the next and then the next and then the next and then the next nobody was safe yeah and we need to understand this at the end of the day well Getting out to to understand this, then, of course, you're making, um, and I'm going to use the term Holocaust as kind of catch-all term, but between Auschwitz and the concentration camp network and the uh, the, the systematic extermination of, of whole swathes of people and cultures, how do you just do that as a day job, day in, day out, and and remain even even remotely capable of being a functional adult? Uh, short answer. I'm going to give you both, but the short answer is you don't. <laughs> you don't function very well. Um, my, I'm quite open when I talk about. I know there's a lot of historians in my field that don't talk about it, and who refuse to talk about dealing this with, with this kind of thing. I mean, I spoke to a few of them, where they give the advice to not look at this stuff after five o'clock in the afternoon. I am stupid enough to be reading this kind of stuff way into one o'clock in the morning which is probably why I suffer from such horrific nightmares. It's where it's where it all comes out at the end of the day. I do try and put up a barrier, and the barrier is nine times out of ten quite successful, but there are times where I've been in the archives or I've had memoirs or something, and I've been sitting there, and they've broken me. And one of them is Bignia Thretsky, uh, who wrote a book. Uh, it's out of print, but I'd highly recommend people go and get it. I mean, the original is actually better from the Auschwitz Museum, but this book gives a kind of good overview but anyways Big Thoretsky he writes about his brother now I'm an only child so I don't quite understand the sibling sort of kind of bonds but this really hit home I was sitting in the archive and I'm like oh my god his brother actually dies they end up uh, on the first transport together they survive and then his brother gets beaten so severely he ends up dying from internal bleeding and it's that moment when his brother dies and he writes, I'm, I'm paraphrasing here, yeah. I am now all alone and I don't know what to do with myself. I gaze up at the stars and I am on my own and I'm terrified. And I'm sitting there thinking, geez, going, oh, my God, I, I just this is penetrating me so severely. And I sat there and I cried and I closed up the, the the tom and I basically gave it back to the ladies. And I said, thank you very much. I'm not coming back for two weeks two-week detox and there are moments like that where you do I mean there's moments where where you can cope I cannot cope personally with um, medical experiments if you ask me to research them forget it I will say no I can't it is one thing that 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 I just I can't do it I just can't so what you're saying is everybody develops a you know a cut off a coping strategy because because you absolutely have to yeah mine's humor uh I like to laugh and smile and um my motorbike my motorbike's my other sort of healer my dogs and being out and being able to talk to people and also talking to people who deal with the same thing is also really good for you because you know you could say oh you know I've just read some really horrible stuff and they're like okay yeah no I get it and they're the kind of people that get you at the end of the day they they get the yeah. weirdos because I, I feel we're, we're kind of weird us holocaust and concentration camp historians well unique no weirder unique. than the rest of us there are people out there that are obsessed with the buttons that are on a Wehrmacht uniform. They're weird. Oh, yeah. No, that's that's truly weird. Um, but it, look, at the end of the day, it's a hard job. Somebody's got to do it. 
And I enjoy giving these people a voice. And that's the bottom line for me is being able to give these people who don't have a voice a voice. And and how do you um, when when giving out that voice and doing that sort of teaching and education? I mean, aside from, you know, what's going through your own mind, how how do you get that message out? to to the wider public as a public historian without either delivering the same level of you know mental health danger that that you're putting yourself in or by or without you know telling them what to think about it rather than how to think about it okay you just said something that i'm going to underline if you think um, let's phrase this differently there are ways that I like to shock people because it's the only way for people to be able to understand and for be able to people to go oh my god that's really is what happened do not go and watch my shows with Woody because those are probably the most shocking graphic ones I've ever done yeah I've watched both of well I've watched two of them so you've done four as I believe I have um and the last one the most recent one is actually so horrific that uh the feedback was where people had to watch half of it go away and come back to it because at the end of the day I believe if I'm going to sugarcoat it you're not going to learn anything and to a point you did say yes you know we don't want to give people traumatic stress and and things like that but at the end of the day if we don't show what it's actually happening or what actually happened are they learning are they going to go away with something are they going to remember this for this to never happen again true true but do you run into a how many requests do you get to you know sugarcoat it tone and tone it down do, it, does this come along it does and it happens when i deal with kids now i have a very i'm very weird when it comes down not everybody agrees with me and you know we're all entitled to our own opinion at this point but i believe that um you should be learning about the holocaust at gcse level a minimum um it is such a traumatic thing and it's so horrific that children should not be exposed to this yes they could learn about the basics about what happened in germany about the war but talking on a level like this they have to be a little bit older a little bit more developed i mean i was uh, 15 when i first went to auschwitz and i still think that was too young for me to be able to understand i mean it developed i developed this interest i mean so it's not really a bad thing that i went when i was 15 but at the end of the day there's a lot of kids that are still quite undeveloped mentally and you should be able to try and be able to understand it. And it's so difficult to get these kids to understand what happened. I mean, it's hard enough to get my generation who are in their 30s to understand what is yeah. it like getting a 15, 16 year old who's like 75 years detached, if that makes sense. Yeah, who can't even speak to their grandfather about it. Oh, exactly. Who, because their grandfathers are no longer alive. You know, they don't have that tangible history. So it proves to become very difficult to teach this this area of, of history. And I, and I try and I try to make it interesting and relatable, especially to kids, making it relatable um, and putting them in the situation of what the Second World War was like. What was it like in Poland? What was it like for the Poles? What was it like for the Jewish population and things like that? And to make it ta- it's like pretty much what you do. I mean, you do literally um, physically be able to show what happened. It's a little bit difficult for us on, on this centre to, to show exactly what happened, but in a way to kind of inspire them to use their imaginations and to put them in that situation and say, listen, okay, so you're out, it's summer, and you're out on your bicycle, playing with your friends, and life is overall for you, hunky-dory, everything is great. And you go back home and everything changes. And putting them in that situation seems to work. 
and they seem to understand it a little bit better. Oh, well, thank you. Now, it's, it's, you've, we've got to ask, really. You've got, you must get inundated with deniers, conspiracy theorists, all manner of, uh, of weirdos. And, and how do you deal with that? How do I deal with that? Well, how do I deal with it now is I ignore them because they're all a bunch of idiots. Um, <laughs> well, yes, but you never argue with an idiot because they just drag you down to their level and beat you with years of experience of being an idiot. And that is the problem because once you get a Holocaust denier, you are never going to be able to convince them otherwise. You could go blue in the face, give them all the evidence that they need, and they're still going to turn around and say, oh, well, you know, um, it didn't really happen, did it? But to be fair, I've had one success, actually. I was at a conference and uh, I came across this lady who said, oh, the six million number is just impossible. And I said, I'm sorry, what? She goes, oh, you're, six million people couldn't be gassed. And I said, I'm sorry, why do you think six million people were gassed? She goes, oh, but that's what the statistics are. I'm like, no, 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 young lady. No, 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 no. that's not exactly what happened. Uh, and I had to explain to her that six million people were not gassed, you know, it's they were dying you know in the killing fields they were dying in uh, yeah. in the ghettos they were dying in roundups they were dying from starvation you know it wasn't that's the simple answer but i earlier sent you a, a picture of something that came up on twitter which yes. i think is fantastic cause it's just so stupid and i will for um, you put this out in the show notes uh for those of you that are listening so i uh, can take a look at the uh, in, uh at the show notes screen if you can I mean, we're not going to go through all of them because we'll be here for a whole other podcast. But <laughs> just the stupid, I mean, all of this on here is true. Well, if I, mean, I just kind true. of describe this for people who aren't necessarily looking at it, what it is, it's a, it's a photo gallery with the title, The Reality of Auschwitz. And it mentions a pool with a diving board, a soccer team, a post office, an orchestra, um, greenhouses. And, and, and yeah, it's, it's classic denier stuff. And let's like say we'll, we'll put a copy of it up. I think, do you know what, for me, the funnest, the funnest, the most ridiculous one on here is, is the brothel. There was a brothel. <laughs> it's, it's like, it's like, yes. Okay. So all the prisoners had a really good laugh and they went in and, 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 and had sex with prostitutes. But, oh my God, that's the last thing that was on prisoner minds. And for example, you know, the, these were only given out, for example, to Poles. And um, they are, it's, it's such a complicated subject, this, but it's like that they're making it out that, that, that the prisoners who were dying, by the way, you know, who think of nothing but food, okay, are going off to a brothel having sex. I mean, just, I just can't understand the concept of this, of, um, I, I mean, Paul, would you, would you, feeling starved and practically dying, would you be wanting to go off and have sex? Uh, I'd be wanting to go off and eat. I mean, to be fair, most people are required to take me to a restaurant before sleeping with me anyway. Exactly. So uh, this just, it just doesn't, I mean, okay, for example, the next one, there's a post office. This is true. There were sent, postcards were sent home, but they were so heavily, heavily edited and you could only write in German. Okay. And you had to find the money to trade food and it was, it was very difficult. It costs money that you couldn't get hold of in, in Auschwitz it was it was really really difficult to send send letters home and hold on a minute what if you can't write in German 
then you're done. You then you have to pay someone to write the letter for you. I mean, yes, there was a post office, but it's not so simple. There was a post office, so they got to send stuff home. No, it was heavily edited. And if you go to the Auschwitz archive, you can see the letters where they've literally cut massive chunks out because it didn't conform to what was supposed to be said. Yeah. You it mentioned here as well on the, the, the soccer team and the orchestra. Oh, God. Do you know what? Let's We can start with the soccer team. Okay, yes, there was sport in Auschwitz. Uh, it was done on a Sunday. Uh, Tadeusz Piotrkowski was a boxer, so they had boxing matches. Okay, yes, they had a soccer team. And uh, Czesław Sowol, funnily enough, actually says, uh, reminisces about when they played football. And he goaded this other prisoner on to shoot a goal. And the following day, this prisoner who won against the, the, the German Carpos, uh, ended up at the firing uh, firing squad. Good God. So the question is, did he end up there because he f- shot a goal? We will never know. We'll never know the true answer. But the answer, the, the, the kind of thing is there, the suggestion is he ended up there because he scored a goal. So it's not so simplistic to say there was a, there was a, there was a football team, there was a soccer team. It was all hunky-dory. No, it was not. Yeah. And at the end of the day, it's it's a prison as well as an extermination camp. It's got the things that you would normally find in prisons. Exactly. And an orchestra, this is this is probably the most hilarious. Yes, they had an orchestra and it was all hunky-dory. And they they played for the, the, the German SS officers and things like that. They did. They did concerts and things like that. I mean, it was probably one of the best commandos to end up in was being in the orchestra because you ended up doing lighter, easier work and you had a better chance of survival going into the orchestra. But at the end of the day, you could you could end up shot or yeah. um, thrown into a into a, a commando that would end up killing you. Well, it's, or it's one more way of making yourself useful to the Reich, and being useful to the Reich is what keeps you alive. Exactly, exactly, and it's 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 horrific. The people what and the orchestra basically was there to. Uh, march everybody out of the camp and march everybody back in. Yeah. Well, it's enough said about those denying idiots, the better. Um, what, what for the future has uh, is the Paletsky Institute um, got planned? Which, which directions are they currently going in? Ah, okay. We have lots of really exciting stuff going on. At the moment, we've got the Graduate Academy, um, which is for American graduate students. It's uh, something that I'm hoping to expand to uh, Britain and Australia and things like that. So we'll see where that takes us. Um, We've got lots of other really exciting projects, one which I'm pitching to my uh, director on Friday. And if this one pans out, then I'm going to be completely and utterly over the moon. I'm inspired by uh, my uncle, who was in the 82nd Airborne. So he's my my inspiration for this. And um, God, I could list so many things. I mean, we're we're expanding into Augustov, which is um, towards Białystok in Poland. We're going to have a site there. Uh, we're expanding more into the English speaking world. So you'll be seeing a lot more of me either on YouTube or on uh, podcasts and things like that. Um, so yeah, I mean, there's things I want to tell you, but I don't know if I'm allowed to. So do go and follow us on, uh, on the Facebook page um, and the YouTube, YouTube and the Twitter page, which, uh, which I run the Twitter page. So I'm always there and lots of exciting things happening. We've even got um, a book, prize coming out i think they're going to be announcing the shortlist uh in god i think it should be soon i think it should be soon and i've seen the books 
And oh my God, some of these people are so amazing that I'm excited myself to be talking to them. Excellent. Well, thank you very much for joining us today, Alina. I really thank you. I mean, that was harrowing, but I think enlightening uh, and absolutely vital. So, So thank you. Thank you for inviting me. You're welcome. If you'd like to hear more from Alina, then uh, you can follow her on Twitter um, at www.2girl1944, where you will find that she posts regular daily extracts of Polish history. And you can follow the Pilecki Institute at the Pilecki Inst on Twitter as well. Ladies and gentlemen, I hope you've uh, enjoyed this episode. You can follow us at Twitter. I'm at Paul Baffle. Um, and you can follow Kyle at Kyle G History. And you can leave comments and thoughts. And please send your own history rages using the hashtag history rage. We want to know what you wish people would just stop believing. If you've enjoyed our work, then please subscribe. Leave us a review on iTunes, Google, Amazon, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you very much for listening. And from myself and Alina, bye-bye. Botox Cosmetic, out botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.